Mark 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So over the last few weeks, we, we've been digging into what we call our distinctives as a church. We've taken these first five Sundays in January to focus in on these things. And these distinctives have to do with the ways that we believe that God has like uniquely positioned us as a church body. Uh, but they also speak to like the things that are of primary importance to us. And so thus far, and I'll try to pull these up, we have talked about our vision as a church, which we don't mean that in sort of a mystical way. We mean like the future that we hope for, the future that we envision as a body. And that's that we would be a missionary family, that we would truly be a people who are living life together, that we are sharing life together, that we're bearing one another's burdens, that we're caring for each other, Doing family stuff, right? Not, not just like family and name only, but real family stuff. And that we're going with the gospel out into our world. Like as we leave this place today, as we scatter, as we go with the gospel filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are seeking to share that good news with everybody that we come into contact with in word and in deed. So we're not just talking about drive-by, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. We're talking about truly seeking to model the gospel in front of our neighbors, in front of our family members, in front of our co-workers. And ideally, that's compelling stuff when like the real gospel is on display. Ideally, it makes people either repulsed and turned off or it makes, makes people deeply intrigued. Because the real gospel is so different from just the way everybody else lives life. So missionary family. We've talked about our worship and what you might call our worship style, but really more our philosophy of how we worship the Lord. And, and that's that we're trying to embrace like a modern liturgical form of worship. And if you remember that word liturgy might be a strange word to you, not something you use every day, certainly in conversation. But the word liturgy just means the work of the people. So everything that we were talking about at the beginning of the service is what's embodied in that word, that we are here to worship God. We are here to worship Jesus Christ. We are not here to worship some, or some Christian professionals or some figureheads. We are not here to watch other people worship God. We are coming together as his body to do that. And we're trying to do that in a way that is, you know, not just filled with empty traditionalism or just doing things for the sake of doing things, but is filled with things that are meaningful and purposeful and point us towards the cross of Christ. And then we talked about our theology, which is uh, gospel centered, that Jesus is the center of everything. This is Christianity. Right. Jesus and what we believe about Jesus is of the utmost importance. There is nothing more important than what we believe about Jesus. And it is what we believe about Jesus 
that sets us apart from all other world religions because so many world religions would claim to believe in a creator God. What distinguishes us as Christians is that we believe that Jesus is his son and that the only way to the creator is through the son, right? So what we believe about Jesus is important. And when we are gospel centered, that means the way we live our lives, the way we make decisions, the way we uh, interact with our spouse, the way we parent our kids, the way we interact with our coworkers, the whole of our existence ideally revolves around the truth of who Christ is. He's not an add-on, he's not a hobby, he's not an addition, he's ideally the sinner, and everything else is being formed and shaped around him. Who was he? How did he live? What did he teach? What did he do? That's forming the basis for my life. And so none of us are there perfectly. We're all increasingly moving in that direction, hopefully. But that is very much how we view the scriptures, that everything in the scriptures, it's God's revelation of himself. But the Bible and the story, the meta narrative, if you will, is leading towards the story of Christ and what God is doing in and through his son. So that's where we've been the last few weeks. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that our mission as a church is to be discipleship focused. Oh, missed it. Discipleship focused. So let me read this to you. This is just kind of our basic statement for what we mean when we say discipleship focused and that this is our mission. Scripture teaches that Christ's mission for his church is to go and make disciples. We see that in Matthew 28. We see that in John 20, numerous places. Disciples, though, are simply individuals who have placed their faith in Christ as their Savior and are, as a result, seeking to pattern their lives after his example. To that end, the disciple is a learner, and Christ is the one whom they are seeking to learn. Our discipleship process revolves around four key experiences. We'll talk about these today. Life together in a gospel-centered community, biblical teaching, personal coaching, and actualization of calling. We'll get into all of that stuff in a few minutes. But this is what we're talking about when we say that as a church, our mission is to be discipleship-focused. So this week and last week, our text has centered around Jesus calling men to follow him. And to become his disciples. Last week it was Philip and Nathaniel. If you remember, Philip went and found Nathaniel and said, come and see. Like we have found him. We found the one that, that the prophets foretold, the Messiah. Come, come on, you got to come see it. And Nathaniel was initially a little bit skeptical, but then he encounters Jesus. And like, you know, in a moment he declares, you are the Messiah. Like you are the king of Israel, is what he says. So we saw that last week, and then today we encounter Jesus calling two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and James and John. And as we've said before, it can seem on the surface, as you read these accounts, especially in Mark's gospel, it can seem as if Jesus just walks up out of nowhere and says, follow me. And apropos of nothing, these guys drop everything and follow Jesus. So we have to do a little digging here to kind of figure out what's going on, because this isn't just like zombies following Jesus. Jesus is not doing something magical here to like compel them to follow him. 
Um, and it's not as if these men have no choice but to drop and fall in line. And so a couple of things that are important for us to remember here. First of all, the influence of John the Baptist is central in the lives of these men. It is clear that John had a great deal of influence over a multitude of people. I mean, mass numbers of people were coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized. And John's ministry was all about two things. One, calling people to repentance, calling people to turn from their sins and be baptized, and then telling them to be on the lookout for the Messiah. Like, and, and so we have seen that. We, we talked about John the Baptist a few weeks ago when we talked about the baptism of Jesus. So there are many people who are primed and ready by John to believe, including these men. And when Jesus begins his ministry, John is the first to say, this is him. This is him. And then John tells his followers, I've got to decrease. Like, like now my work here is over. I must decrease. You being a disciple of me must come to an end and he must increase. So, so that's the first point I would make. The second is the concept of becoming a disciple was not strange in Jewish culture. So the idea of leaving family life behind, career behind, to apprentice yourself to a rabbi was not weird. It was not uncommon in Jewish culture. Jesus is not calling these guys to something foreign. John the Baptist had disciples. It was normal for Jewish teachers to take on apprentices selectively, like to invite young men into apprenticeship with them. In like Acts 22, we learned that the apostle Paul had been a disciple of a man named Gamaliel, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish high court. So even Paul had been apprenticed at one point to a rabbi. And, and so it, it, also, it also could be a great honor for a young man to link up with a prominent rabbi within the Jewish faith. So, so all that to say, if you read this as Jesus just like randomly walking up saying, follow me, and these guys suddenly become robots, you're missing it. You need to dig in a little bit more to the backstory. And we're in Mark's gospel here. So there's not, there's not a lot in Mark's gospel to go on. It is probably the first gospel account that was written after Jesus's ascension. It is extremely concise. It is not wordy. It does not go into great detail. Even here, just in chapter one alone, thus far, we've been introduced to John the Baptist. So it's interesting. That's where the gospel account begins for Mark is with John the Baptist. Matthew's account begins with like a genealogy of Jesus. Some gospel accounts begin with like the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't do that. He fast forwards 30 years to John the Baptist. And that's where he starts. And so we've been introduced to John the Baptist in Mark's gospel. It's been explained to us that John is the one that the prophet Isaiah talked about when he talked about one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark draws a connection between this guy and prophecy of old. And then we see Jesus come to be baptized. And as you may recall from a few weeks ago, John's like, you got to be kidding me. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, no, no, no. This must happen for us to fulfill all righteousness, is what he says. So Jesus has an acute sense of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled, what has to happen, the order that it needs to happen in. And if you remember when Jesus is baptized by John, he comes up out of the water. There's this booming voice from the heavens that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so in that moment, in front of all of these people, not only is Jesus baptized, but God the Father is identifying himself with the Son. 
And as we said, Jesus' baptism is all about him identifying himself with the Father and saying, I'm following him. I only do what I see my Father doing. Next, we saw Jesus uh, go into the wilderness to face temptation, which is a, an example uh, in, in Mark of how it is not wordy at all. So it basically says Jesus went in the, into the wilderness to face temptation and was attended to by angels. Like, and that's it. So in other gospel accounts, we get a much larger uh, exposition of what happened while Jesus was in the wilderness. And then Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he begins his public ministry. And he begins his public ministry by calling disciples, by calling men to follow him. And then he starts healing people. I mean, that's, that's the next step in Mark's gospel. So two words, two words that get used to describe this particular group of men whom Jesus calls to follow him. The first word is disciple. The other word is apostle. And notice that neither of those are used in our text today. The word disciple comes from the Greek mathete or mathetes, which means student, it means learner. Jesus was calling people to be his pupils, to learn from him, to sit under his tutelage, to sit under his teaching. This is the primary posture of a disciple, by the way. If you consider yourself, and I hope you do, a disciple today, the primary posture of a disciple is that of a student not as the master, but that of a student being an apprentice to Christ, being a pupil to Christ. So when we talk about discipleship in the way of Jesus, the, the basic question that we're trying to answer is this. How did Jesus teach his students? Like when we, when we ask the question, what is discipleship or how do we make disciples? We're trying to answer the question, how did Jesus teach his students? How did he go about forming them? And now, as we said last week, there are many disciples, not just the 12, not just the disciples. Um, they get singled out because of their closeness to Jesus. But also the 12 are notable because Jesus calls them specifically to the work of apostleship. So you may use those two words interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing. Disciple and apostle. Disciple is a student, a learner. An apostle is something different. It comes from the Greek apostolos which means messenger, think uh, emissary, ambassador, delegate, somebody who has been given a task, they've been given specific orders, and they've been sent to complete that task. And, and so that's how these guys take on this mantle of apostle. It's one who's been commissioned, one who's been sent to represent another person, um, which is exactly what Jesus did with them at the end of his time on earth. Um, you've heard, we've talked about it today already, you've heard of the Great Commission. That wasn't language that they were using. That wasn't language even that the early church was using. That's more modern language that we would call Matthew 28, the Great Commission. But it's where Jesus tells his disciples, all right, like the season of you sitting under me as your Teacher, like in, in a very traditional way, you learning from me, you watching me, you hearing me, me sending you out to do things. That season has now come to an end, and now go, right? Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, in the, name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? Teach them to do what I've taught you to do. So Jesus sends them out. So in other words... 
So rather than saying, uh, my time as your rabbi is over, you now get to be the master rabbi. Now, now go make a name for yourself, right? Now, which is what a normal Jewish rabbi would do. Now go make a name for yourself. Take on your own students. Make it about you. No, Jesus says, go and tell them what I told you. Go teach them to obey what I taught you to obey. So the meaning is embedded in the call to become fishers of men. It's not just come learn from me, but come learn specifically to go fish for men. And so we believe this call to discipleship um, not only remains unchanged, like that that's still a call that's placed on the lives of disciples. Um, we believe that it's the primary mission of the church. The primary mission of the church is to go and make disciples. And while we might not call ourselves apostles, the New Testament is clear that because of what Jesus has done, we are sent by him out into our world to act as ambassadors. Probably the most quoted passage of scripture in our church is this one, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think there are a couple of things going on here. Some people might read this as Paul saying, no, 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 this is what I do. You guys don't have to do this. This is what I do. No, no, no. I think he's telling everybody, this is what's happened for all of us in Christ Jesus. We have all been reconciled to God through Christ. And, and here's what I need to hear every single day. Be reconciled. I need to hear it every single day. I need to hear the message of the gospel. I need to be reminded of its truth. I need people to implore me to be reconciled to Christ, to repent of my sin, to remember what is right and good and true every day. Right. We've talked about this every day. We need to repent and believe. Right. It's not a one time thing. It's not a single decision. It is a daily decision. It's a multiple times daily decision to repent of any other gods, to turn from anything else I might worship, and to truly give myself fully to Christ. So the picture here is that through Jesus' sacrifice, he is recreating us into people who, equipped with his Holy Spirit, who become ambassadors and take his message of reconciliation to the world, right? That he has filled us with his Spirit and he's given us this good news for that purpose. But recognize this, making disciples, and this is true in your life probably as well, making disciples is not just a transfer of information. It's not just about going from ignorance to intelligence. Making disciples isn't just about learning more. It's a multifaceted process if we're looking at the model of Jesus or the way of Jesus. And also realize you are called to engage it. It's not something that will happen by accident. Right? It's not something that's going to be easy. 
you have to be intentional, not only as a learner, but also as a teacher. Because if the words of Jesus and the example of the apostles and the example of their teaching is true, not only have you been called to apprentice yourself to Christ, you have been called to call others to apprentice themselves to Christ. And so we embody and inhabit these roles of both student and teacher, right? Of disciple and discipler. So, as I mentioned earlier, there are four, in our opinion, four critical parts to discipleship. You might get add more to this list, but these are the four for us that really stand out. First is life together in a gospel-centered community. So when we see the disciples in the pages of the gospels, we see them interacting not only with Jesus, but with each other and living life together, like sharing life together, sharing this experience of learning Christ together, life together in a gospel-centered community. The second is biblical teaching. So obviously they're sitting under the verbal teaching of Jesus, right? They're listening to him. They're, they're taking in the things that he has to say. But also, Jesus is coaching them. Now that's, that's modern language. That's language we would use. But when you really look at it, that is what Jesus is doing. And we're going to dig into these a little bit more in just a minute. But then ultimately, that's all leading towards the point where he says, now go. Right? There's a calling that's placed on their life, and Jesus is guiding them to the point that that calling is actualized. Like that they realize the calling, not just intellectually, but that they actually go do it. And here's the thing, we say this often, but we're here 2,000 plus years later talking about Christ because these guys actualized the calling that God had placed on their lives. And, and my question is, who is that for you? Like, who's that in your life? Right? Who, who, who was instrumental for you? Who, who called you? Who pulled up alongside you? Who modeled the gospel in front of you? Who invited you in? Right? More than likely, it, it might be one person or it might be a multitude of people, but also recognize that there's this 2,000 year history of the church that has led to whoever that person was who invited you into relationship with Christ. And, and who is that for you? Hopefully for all of us who have kids, we're playing that role in the lives of our children. I pray I'm not the only one that plays that in the life of my children, but, but God forbid I don't play that role in the life of my children, right? Your coworkers, your neighbors, your other family members. I mean, we could make a long list, right? Who are the people in your life that you have the potential to have influence with for the sake of the gospel? So we're gonna dig deeper into those four. But recognize this, before the discipleship process can begin, there has to be repentance. There has to be repentance. And I don't simply mean turning from sin. Like in, in the most basic context, repentance is just turning from I'm leaving this thing and I'm taking on this thing. Right? That's the most basic understanding of repentance. There has to be a forsaking before there can be a following. There has to be a forsaking of one thing for the other. So for the men in our text today, there's this forsaking of career and family. There's this, we're leaving dad and the hired help and the nets and the boat. We're leaving it and we're hitching our wagon to this. We can't do both. We can't do both of these things. So it's, it's like textbook repentance that we see. It's turning from one thing to embrace another. And if you believe, it's essential. It's essential. You can't just add discipleship onto your already busy life. You can't just dabble in discipleship. For example, Jesus says no one can serve two masters because he's really going to love one and hate the other. 
Like you can pretend that you're serving two masters, but it doesn't work in, in reality. Um, you, you, can't, you can't keep on fishing for fish and hold with equal importance fishing for men. One of those things is ultimately going to win out. You can't serve both of them. Or maybe even more uh, directly, Jesus says in Luke 9, if I can pull this up. Jesus says in Luke 9, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you notice the text, I'm sure you did, that we read earlier that said, let those of you who have wives act like you don't have wives anymore? What's he talking about there? He's talking about being so committed to the gospel mission of Jesus that there is nothing in your life, no matter how significant or important, that comes above it, that comes before it. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be people who think you hate your family because you are so bought in to me. You're so committed. You're so devoted to me. That other people are going to look at the way that you maybe don't give priority to the things that the world deems to be of top importance and go, what, do you hate us? No, I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus more. Now, this seems harsh maybe to us or a little unloving to us, but Jesus' point there is you can't be one foot in, one foot out. You can't. You can't kind of be a disciple. You're either with me or you aren't. Jesus isn't looking for enthusiasts. Jesus isn't looking for hobbyists. He's not looking for dabblers. Jesus isn't looking for like weekend warriors. He's looking for ambassadors. But once people step in, he does four key things. First, he builds gospel community with them, right? He, he brings them together, and it's intentional. Not just that you would hear my words, not just that you would see my actions, but that you would have the opportunity with each other to experience those things and process those things together. And you see the disciples doing that in the pages of the Gospels. Um, so he creates this gospel community. He teaches them the gospel, right? He tells them the good news, and he teaches them biblical truths. I mean, Jesus is constantly pouring what we think of as the scriptures into their lives. It's amazing how much Jesus quotes the Old Testament, by the way, as you read through the Gospels. Next, he coaches them, and there's three big ways that he does this. First of all, he models what it looks like to be obedient to the Father in front of them. So Jesus is modeling what it looks like to live this gospel-centered life. He gives them opportunities to practice it. So before he leaves, there are numerous places where he takes them, he gives them specific instructions, he sends them out to do what he's told them to do so that they can then come back and debrief with him the experience that they had. So they can go try it. They can go put into practice some of what he's teaching them and modeling for them. And then Jesus has personal conversations with them. And, and one thing I would point out here is you cannot overestimate the importance of failure in the life of becoming a disciple, in the life of being a follower of Jesus. Just think about Peter. 
How pivotal, how critical was Peter's denial of Jesus in Peter becoming the apostle that he became, right? Had Jesus not circled back around after Peter's denial and said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you really love me? Feed my sheep. Had there not been that forgiveness and that grace and that reminder of who you were and what you did and what I have done for you now, man, we have to be. And Paul is so often reminded of his faults, of his sins, of his shortcomings. We can't act like we don't have that stuff anymore, but it should drive us to remember God's grace through Christ so that we might grow deeper in obedience to him. This is what we have to realize. Uh, God has uniquely equipped us all. And let me, let me mention this fourth one as well before I move on. Um, he coaches and then he also sends. So that actualization of calling peace that we've talked about. Eventually, at some point, he pushes them out of the nest. He pushes them out of the nest. Now, one of the things I see often in churches today is, even churches that are well-meaning and have kind of a discipleship structure, is there is no, like, actualization of calling peace. Like, there's no, there's no point where we kind of go, okay, we've been doing this for a few years now. We've seen growth. You've developed. You've experienced some failures. You've put some of these things into practice. And so now... Go do what God's called you to do. And that might mean looking like leaving your faith community, but more than likely it just looks like you actually stepping into what you know God has called you to do. Because so often that's scary, or it's out of our comfort zone, or we're not sure how how that's going to work out. Lord knows that was me when we first started down this road of planting a church. I've never planted a church before. Like, I've been a pastor, but this is a whole new world, right? And, and, And yet there had to come a point where we, we either had to do it or not do it, right? And we couldn't, I couldn't silence that voice of the Lord going, no, 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 this is what it is. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what this looks like over the next 400 years, but here's what you're doing. Are you going to obey me or not? So this is what we have to realize. God has uniquely equipped you and me with gifts and talents and passions that are to be used for his glory as his ambassador, as his emissary. In other words, we try to answer the question all the time. We do this in coaching. What is your calling? What has he sent you to do in this season? Who has he put in your path? What context are you in? We're asking all of those questions because we believe that your calling is the unique way that God has designed you to make disciples. The call is not for everyone to become a local church pastor or plant a church or be a missionary. For most of us, the call is something entirely different. It's to be a mom or it's to uh, teach school or it's to be in the marketplace or it's to be in the military. I mean, a whole host of things, no matter where you are or what you're gifted for, or what God has called you to, we are to be on mission for him there. And the problem is for many of us, we live these bifurcated lives where I go to work and I, I, I live by the culture of my workplace. Right. I'm an ambassador of my workplace and our workplace culture and, and my industry. And then I go to church and I do the church stuff. But these are two separate things. And, and what Christ is calling us to is this holistic existence where there's no point where I'm taking off my disciple hat and putting on my engineer hat or my banker hat or my school teacher hat. No, no, no. I'm a disciple of Jesus first, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what my vocation is. So your work matters, right? No matter what it is, there's not some work that's greater than other work. It all matters. But recognize, just like Jesus, 
you have to invite people in. You have to invite people in. Discipleship does not happen by accident. And this is how the church grows. Like in, in reality, this is how the real church grows. Um, it's not simply through inviting people to religious events, but through inviting people to walk with you in your life and with your community. And, and so, yeah, I think that will result in you inviting people to church, but it's not just so that they can come to a thing. It's so that they can be a part of the family, the missionary family that we were talking about earlier. So I'm going to close with this today. Uh, Pastor Tom Mercer. Uh, there's a Greek word in the New Testament, oikos. It means household. Um, so sometimes you will see somebody follows Christ and then it will say that their entire household gets baptized. Their entire oikos gets baptized. And so Pastor Tom Mercer kind of seizes on that word um, because it's clear in the New Testament that if someone follows Christ, it affects the whole household. And, and a household in the New Testament wasn't just nuclear family. It was, uh, you know, servants. It could be friends, neighbors who had come to kind of dwell alongside you. Um, it could be uh, what were called sojourners, which could be travelers or immigrants from another place um, who are maybe working for you or with you. And, and so he takes that and kind of extrapolates it out into our world today and simply asks, who are the like 8 to 15 people that are in your immediate circle of contact. Like, like, who are the people that you spend most of your time with? Who are the people that you constantly run into? Who are the people you work alongside, live alongside? Who are the people you hang out with? Who are the people you have fun with? Who are those folks? Like, so what is the equivalent of your oikos today? What is the equivalent of your household today? And, and so he challenges his church members to do a few things, and I'll throw these out here to you guys this morning. I think these could possibly be helpful for you in grasping some of these things. First of all, he says, you know, write down their names. <laughs> like basic stuff here, guys. Who are these people? Write down their names. And he even puts them into like four buckets. I don't know if you need to do this, but he talks about pre-Christians, which are just unbelievers, like people who are not currently followers of Jesus. If you don't know any people who are not followers of Jesus, we need to broaden your oikos, right? We need to broaden your household a little bit. You should know people who don't know Jesus, right? So he talks about prodigals, and he uses that word to describe people who would say that they are Christians, but it's clear. You look at their life. They're not following Christ. They might believe there's a God. They might believe Jesus is real, but it's clear they're not a disciple of Jesus. Purposefuls are people who really are disciples of Jesus. They're following him. He went with a P theme here, I think. Um, there are people who are really following Jesus. You know, you see them, you recognize the gospel in their lives. And then there's potentials. And potentials are just people who he's like, who are, who are like folks who have come onto the stage of your life here recently? Who do you, like just all of a sudden, they maybe popped up out of nowhere, but, but they're right there. Like, what, what is God calling you to do in light of them? How is God calling you to interact with them? So he says, just write down their names. And, and then step two, pray for all of these people every single day. Pray for all of these people every single day, the people that are in your immediate vicinity. Your children should be on this list, guys. Right? Your spouse should be on this list. Your most immediate coworkers should be on this list. Your neighbors, the people that live right around you, should probably be on this list. Pray for them every day. Pray that the Lord would make himself manifest in their lives, that they would see him and his beauty and the beauty of the gospel and that they would respond to him. And then be vigilant for ways that you can invest in their lives. 
We've talked about the Bell's acrostic before, which the, the B in that is to just bless people. Like every week that you would pick out two or three people in your life and just go, man, how can I bless somebody this week? Like how can I provide for somebody or how can I bear someone's burden or how can I take care of them or whatever? Can I just buy you a meal this week? Um, same kind of thing. Be on the lookout. Like be intentional about going, how can I invest in them this week? How can I help them? How can I bless them? And then invite them deeper into your life and, and regularly invite them into relationship with your gospel community. Like we get a little bit weird, I think, about inviting people to church if we're thinking about the church as an event. You are the church, right? You are the church. When we talk about inviting people to church, we're talking about you inviting people into relationship with you and your community, not to a thing. Not to come be a spectator and then go to lunch and go, did you like that? Did you not like that? What did you think about this? What did you think about that? But no, no, no. In the same way that you would have people over for dinner and invite maybe some other friends who don't know those friends over for dinner. Like, that's what we're talking about here. We're connecting people together. We're trying to put people into contact with more people who love Jesus and whose lives center around him and his gospel. So invite them deeper into your life, regularly invite them into your gospel community. And then finally, be diligent in your own personal growth, right? Be diligent in your work as a disciple so that they can look to you as an example as well. And they can come to you. So here's the tension. And I'm landing the plane here. We can't save anyone, right? And we don't want people to get the impression that they're like our project. Like we're, we're deeply concerned about that. And so our tendency is to use that as an excuse to do nothing. But here's the reality. While you cannot save anyone, you can introduce them to Christ. Right? You can model the gospel in front of them. You've clearly been sent to disciple people in our world. You can invite them into your gospel family. So you are not like some powerless player in this equation. Obviously God's sovereignty has to be on display. Obviously God has to do his work. Obviously the Holy Spirit has to draw people to repentance. But you are not powerless in this. You have a God-ordained, God-called role in this. You play a vital role. And the role that you play is that of the church. You are the church. But here's the thing. If you say you love them, but you're more worried about them feeling like they're your project than you are them knowing and loving Christ, then you are being guided by a fear of how you will be perceived rather than a genuine concern and care for their soul. What's more important? Can you imagine us saying, well, you know, we're not going to gather a church anymore or invite people in because we don't want people to think we have like an agenda for them. We do. We do. We have an agenda for you and for anybody that walks through the door. And that is that you would know and love Jesus Christ, that he would be the center of your life. If we don't have that agenda for you, we are not the church. And praise God that he saw fit to make you and me his project. 
Because we did not deserve it. And we did not earn it. So who has God put in your path? Who has he called you to invite in? Who should you be actively, fervently praying for every day? And what does it look like for you to truly pull up alongside them and to begin to invest in them and to draw them closer? Not just to check some box. Not so that you'll get some kudos. But so they won't die and go to hell. Is that reason enough? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your gospel. Thank you for the truth of what Christ has done for us. And, and God, I'm so thankful for this family here. And the way that you've called us together and gifted us and resourced us. And I pray, Father, that you would that you would continue to draw us deeper. Not only into just what we know about Christ, but into what we're actually walking out on a daily basis. Father, we recognize that you are Lord of all things. We recognize that none of this is possible without you. And yet somehow that is true, and yet you have also called us as your body to be your hands and feet in this world. And I pray, Father, that we would not abdicate that role, that we would receive it with joy and with gratitude and also with a certain level of wonder. God, give us eyes to see our neighbors, our family members, our friends, not as targets, but as people that you have put in our path so that we might declare this beautiful message of reconciliation. And we pray that you would go before us through the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would save, Father. We love you and we thank you for your grace. That's in your name. Amen.